Hello, and welcome to Endpoint Management Today. My name is Rhonda Studentkaiser, and I'm the Director of Customer Experience for Big Fix. And I am James Stewart, Big Fix Python expert. Today, we want you to introduce you to the man ultimately responsible for all the great things you see in our Big Fix capability, Mr. Brian Chory, VP of Engineering. Welcome, Brian. Ultimately responsible, yeah. Yeah, I make all the decisions and I write all the code. I'm ultimately responsible. Seriously, um, uh, thank, thanks for having me. I don't write any code mercifully. I'm really fortunate to be surrounded by a, a really fantastic global team. So my job is mostly just getting out of you know getting out of the way and enabling them. But thanks for having me. You're welcome. So tell us how you got involved in tech. Uh, how did I get involved in tech? I probably have the longest tech career. Um, I start. I was the only kid in the first grade with glasses. I was just missing the pocket protector. But I essentially was a nerd from day one. I started by modifying my Tyco slot cars and graduated to taking apart toasters and vacuum cleaners and probably built half the Heath kits that were in the catalog, you know, before I was finished junior high. So I've always been a gearhead. It, it was it was a given. Very cool. So did you then like major or focus in on technology when you finally made it out of high school and, and, and went to college? Yeah, um, I originally wanted to be an acoustical engineer and design speaker loudspeakers for hi-fi loudspeakers for a living. And when I graduated, I won't give you the date because I don't want to date myself too much, but there was this transition from analog to digital electronics happening. And I, I signed up as a double E major. So electrical engineer. Yeah, electrical engineering. And because that was the closest thing, the formulas for filters are the closest to the formulas for filters tuning speaker cabinets. And there, there were like two semesters of analog, and then it was all digital stuff, which didn't interest me. So I kind of migrated into computer science from there and then really enjoyed that. I had done a little bit of software in high school, but it was still kind of new back then and really enjoyed it in college. And then I stumbled into artificial intelligence uh, specifically expert systems. And that's the stuff that really excited me. And that's actually, so I, I, I got my undergrad and my graduate with a, with a AI minor and uh, kind of went right into the industry from there. That's pretty cool. It's interesting. You said that like the digital stuff in, in electrical engineering didn't interest you, but then you went like the full digital route with computer science. Yeah. Um, however, um, you know, ex a lot of expert systems is symbolic programming. So I was doing, you know, the C and the C++ and all that and was okay at it. But then when I started programming Lisp and Ops 5, those were symbolic programming languages. So I, I'm, I'm not the guy to be, to be manipulating bits and bytes, but I, I really enjoyed the expert. I, my forte was data-driven expert systems. That's cool. I like that. Yeah, I would say that like I was less interested in like the lower level stuff and more interested in like the higher level programming stuff and enjoyed that so much more in a similar way. And like, that's kind of what steered me away from electrical engineering, basically the very same thing. So what, after that, like what led you to your career that led you to big fix? Like how'd you end up joining big fix from there? How many hours do you have? It, it's I've been, I've been in the industry for a while. When I, when I finished my graduate degree, I was kind of working at Digital Equipment Corporation at the time, and they had a leading edge expert system group. They were um, heavily involved in it. They were 
they were building commercially viable export system from the 70s and 80s. And I got hired into their fa- their world famous XCon, which is their expert configuration system, and was part a minor part of the rewrite there, but had a lot of really good AI mentors. So that was a commercially viable expert system back in the late 80s. And and then I, I kind of branched out into other companies that were doing AI and data-driven expert systems and was fortunate enough to actually architect one that's still in use at Boeing Aircraft today, a computer-aided process planning system um, that's still, use in, it's still in use in their manufacturing plant. And then I was working for a small AI startup. This was AI the last time it was the big thing in the 80s and, and mid-90s. and uh, you know, yet another company kind of fell by the wayside. And, and one of my mentors at the time got into a networking company and said, hey, you know, I kind of need some help over here with this NMS stuff. And by the way, I think that this would be a really good platform for building expert systems on. And he was right. Uh, if you look at just basic network management systems and how they collect alarms across, you know, all different points in the network, the ability to correlate and interpret those alarms, there's some expert knowledge behind that. And so I entered the networking space thinking, you know, like, okay, I'll just build this platform and then I can do what I really want to do. And it turns out building NMS platforms is, was a very lucrative business. And I, probably, I spent the next couple of decades doing that. Bounced around a little bit, relocated from Boston. You might have detected the accent to. California and uh, ended up getting one of the network management platforms that I built was at Cisco Systems. And that was that was a platform that hugely scalable enabled broadband self-provisioning. And it helped Cisco really capture that space in the early 2000s. This thing could scale out to 100 million endpoints and it would, you know, people could connect to it and provision themselves. So it really helped ramp up broadband acceptance and adoption globally. So, you know, years later, HCL was acquiring some Cisco IP. And one of those pieces of IP was a spinoff of this thing that I built 15, 20 years ago. And they hired me to help out with that. That was a fun project. And then one day I crossed paths with Kristen, our general manager, and the chemistry just the team chemistry. I've realized at this point in my career, I've worked on all kinds of different technologies, but it's people and teams that that really stand out. The 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 great in job enjoyments that I've had have been with great teams and smart people and working on meaningful things. And I could just sense that immediately that there was this team chemistry here and people had been together for a long time and wanted to be a part of it. And here I am. That's so cool. Yeah, that's kind of what brought me to Big Fix as well is just that the, you know, as much as I love Big Fix itself and what what's possible with it, I really enjoyed the people I was working with, you know, as a customer. So I came to the other side. As I always joke, I switched dugouts in the middle of the, <laughs> of the game. So what was your vision for Big Fix when you came on board? What did you, you know, from 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 when you started, you know, what what did you want to see happen with the product as you joined us? Yeah, there there were a couple of high level things. When I joined, I had I had uh, a couple of the smart technical folks kind of draw out the whole the, the whole big fix infrastructure, and 
there's a lot there. There's this product has been around for a while. It's hugely successful. It's got just a ton of intellectual property built into it over the years. But you know, it, at some point, it just becomes a little unwieldy. And so, what I saw was a picture with with a, a lot of some siloed uh, applications. And uh, some things that, quite frankly, hadn't been given a lot of attention in a while. So my vision was pretty simple, like simplify that picture on that whiteboard so that I can understand it as, a, as somebody who's new to Big Fix, and, and which hopefully simplifies it for the customers as well. And that was it. And I, I wasn't the right person to, to re-architect this thing. We've got some really smart architects and some very smart technical people. But what we did was got in a room together put the thing up on a whiteboard and said, what should this thing look like in five years? And you guys draw the picture. They drew the picture. They all kind of agreed on the same basic picture. And great. Now let's um, let's just make sure that collectively, as we move forward, we get closer to that picture and not further away. So essentially, you know, try to knock down some of the siloed applications and, and have more of a, a foundation, a common foundation to build on and simplify deployments and and just how everything works together, uh, more of a portfolio view as opposed to having applications that are a little bit siloed from each other. So what did you find cool about BigFix, but also BigFix's kind of like new direction in technology? Well, what, what's cool about BigFix is that it does so much across such a wide range of endpoints. And that's a problem that's really hard to do. Coming from the network management space, we're dealing with disparate devices from different manufacturers, and they've got different sets of attributes and different namings and all that. It's, it's really hard to perform common operations across disparate types of devices. And that's something that's just inherent in BigFix, that, that you, you've got these devices that I can't even understand how they exist anymore, some of these antiquated operating systems. But BigFix supports them. And in most cases, you can perform the same set of operations against a brand new endpoint with a brand new modern operating system, and you can perform that against some antiquated operating system that was out of support 10 years ago. That's a really hard, that's, that's the hard part of the problem, and BigFix has it nailed. So when you're, when you're trying to, to build out a product and capabilities or enter a new space... The, you know, the, the basic logic and features and functions, that tends to be the easy part of the equation. Applying that to massive amounts of devices and different types of devices, that's the hard part of the equation. And we've already solved that. So I think that that's the coolest part of the technology is just this really elegant way of managing consistent interfaces and operations and policies and things like that across such a wide range of devices. And as we started to plug in, you know, agentless and mobile devices and things like that, and have it just work with the with the rest of the infrastructure. That's really cool. So, yeah, there you go. Yeah, that that came up recently in a conversation I was having with our ambassador team. Um, they were like, we, we were talking about some future features that shall that will come, and you'll everybody will be really excited about them. Um, but but one of the things that they said was, you know, we have also have ancient technology, <laughs> like Windows XP and stuff like that. And we also have this problem where all of a sudden somebody grabs something out of a desk drawer and throws it on the network. And 
we, we want to make sure that whatever you're doing here still works on those things. And, you know, the answer was, yep, yep, it'll work. It'll work on that ancient stuff and it'll work on the stuff that's been sitting in a drawer for a while, which was very cool. If you're, if you're a, an endpoint manager that's, that's focusing in a certain area and you want to branch out, it's hard to add that, to add that right? So, but for us, it's a lot easier to add different types of endpoints in, into our infrastructure because of the mapping to the, to the endpoint attributes and all that. So there are areas that we're new at, mobile, agentless stuff, where we're relatively new to the game, we're still building it out. But it's, it's a lot easier to add the attribute support for a class of devices than it is to figure out how to do this consistently across a wide range of devices. So, you know, if you're looking for one way to manage all these different types of devices, um, it's going to be really hard to take different focused vendors and make them work together as opposed to just having something like Big Fix that works across all this wild stuff. And by the way, the, the infrastructure that our that our team built around pl- a mobile plugin portal to support uh, agentless endpoints and iOS and Android and, and new types of other, more types of devices. That is how we kind of horizontally scale out to more types of devices. So these things that are hanging around in the network, like the Samsung fridges and, you know, Philips light bulbs, in theory, you know, we have a platform to plug them in you know, in theory, seamlessly into the big fix infrastructure. So as as we start to grow this thing out, we've we've taken the first step. We've built this new infrastructure that allows for this interesting plug-in capability, and now we can start adding endpoint types to that. And uh, that's going to be really really exciting, I think. Very cool. Very cool. So I'm. I, I think I may know the answer to this question, but. I'm going to ask it anyway. So what uh, what tech things outside of your job interest you? What do you, you know, if you're going to work on like, I don't know, are you working on home automation? What are you doing? I, I actually am a little bit of home automation. I've, I, I'm, I have a big interest in the IoT space because of the big scalable stuff that I've built in the past, you know, being able to branch out to gazillions of endpoints and I think it's a natural progression for for Big Fix. We've heard from a number of customers that that they've got devices in their networks that they don't, you know, the, the Samsung fridge is probably the best example. Somebody went to Best Buy, plugged this thing into their network, and uh, it's exposed. No, who's patching it? Who's who's protecting it? So they're looking for that type of support. Personally, at home, yeah, we I have a lot of home automation here. Um, I've probably got eight different systems between cameras and sensors and light bulbs and all that. And, and, it's, and, and again, that makes you appreciate something like Big Fix all the more because I've got eight different systems with eight different applications and eight different sets of policies, and it's, it's kind of ridiculous. So home automation is definitely on the list. I'm still an audio geek. I, I restore vintage audio, uh, mostly speakers, uh, really esoteric stuff, and and then the last thing is more recent is programmable engine control units for cars. Having a lot of fun there, just learning about engine management and replacing manufacturer type stuff with some programmable, sometimes open source engine control system and learning how that stuff works. That's very cool. That allows you what, like to overclock? So so that, that's sort of the... Um, 
leads into the last hobby, which is restoring and racing old cars. It allows you to to tune an engine to for economy if you want to drive it on the street or performance if you want to race it on the track or something in between. Or like switch it dynamically between the two. Exactly. Yeah. You can you can switch back and forth. Most of what I do is, you know, time trials and some endurance wheel to wheel racing. But I also like driving a lot of these things on the street and you can you can maximize both. Whereas the stuff that you got from manufacturers is especially stuff in the 80s when it first started coming out was basically, you know, optimized for the general case of emissions and mileage and as much performance as they could get given those first two constraints. So is the main thing that you're tweaking like fuel air mixture and the timings or fuel air mixture timing you can muck around with um you know inputs Shift points if it's automatic maybe yep well i none of the stuff that i have is automatic so you wouldn't be messing with shift points then yeah no it's all manual yeah you're doing that part what we call the the millennial anti-theft system yeah exactly (laughs) My husband, I, I don't know if I told you this, Brian, but my husband just bought his, he just bought a 2016 Mazda Miata as MX-5 to go drive around on the track with. And uh, yeah, so I'm learning all about this stuff, but it's it's a manual and I haven't driven a manual in so long. And I'm like, dude, I can't drive stick. <laughs> You've done it before, though, at least. Yeah. He's like, it's not that you can't. It's just that you're out of practice. And I'm like, I'm, I'm just not sure I want to practice. I don't want to practice, man. <laughs> it's like riding a bicycle. And, and I, I find it very enjoyable. If if you're not sitting in stop-and-go traffic, that it's a pain in the neck there. But if you're on a racetrack or on a nice country road, there's nothing like it. Yeah, and like some of the more modern stick shifts, they have like hill stops so you don't roll back and stuff like that. And that's like a really nice-to-have kind of feature if you live somewhere hilly and stuff like that. There's, there's, um, there's probably like, a handful and not even a handful this there might be like two or three or four manufacturers that still sell cars that are manual most of them have gone have shifters so it's it's hard to find it nowadays yeah very very rare yep my car has paddle shifters and i realized uh when when my husband uh, <laughs> we've been having car trouble lately uh when my husband's <laughs> transmission went out in this big truck that it had one of the ways that we could get it going for a little bit as it was dying was to put it into like a manual shift. And I didn't know that it had a manual shift option in it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So it just force it with a paddle. Uh, yeah, it was more cause it's like the, the on the tree thing. So he had to like pull it back and then it kind of engaged it into a manual mode so he could yeah. m- manually like shift between first and second and whatnot. But yeah, that's really so. weird, but yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. I have, I have newer stuff, but man, it, it, you can't, there's only so much you can do to it nowadays and it's so complicated. They'll lock you out. So I, I love playing with the older stuff cause you can, you can pretty much do whatever you want. Yep. It's not uncommon for some new cars to come with basically dual clutch manual transmissions. So like it's, you can't, you're not actually shifting yourself, even if you're using the paddles, but it's, it's actually a manual under the hood. Yeah. It's kind of interesting that that's becoming fairly common. Yeah. And you know, there's so much faster than you can do it with the old, you know, butter churner. But yep. to me, that that's there's just something visceral in how that all works. 
and how you're connected to the vehicle that um, you, it's hard to replace. So yeah, this modern stuff is better. It's faster. It's probably more reliable, but it's not as much fun, and I don't feel as connected to it. Yeah, I think that that's one of the really fascinating things about driving a manual transmission is like you are directly influencing this giant vehicle in, in like a really visceral way that's like one to one. And it's really fascinating to be a part of that. And it yet it being something that like is going away entirely. Yeah. And I and, and you know, I, I was at Laguna Seca probably six months ago and had a couple of cars down there. One of them is a fully prepped race car, mid-80s. It's not hugely fast, but it's a full race car on race tires. And then just for chuckles, I took my my five-year-old street Alfa Romeo out in the track, street tires, no prep whatsoever. And in full comfort, I was doing lap times five seconds a lap faster than the race car. So Whoa. So then there's Nice. That. Yeah. <laughs> Makes you wonder why. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. All right. Well, um, I think that's it for today. Thanks, Brian, for coming on the show and sharing your passion for Big Fix. It's been fun to talk with you about all this stuff, including uh, including the racing. I like the racing. Yeah. Well, thanks very much for having me. And, um, you know, exciting times ahead. Uh, HCL is investing heavily in this thing. Uh, we're able to to put some focus on areas that that we, you know, that our previous admin kind of hamstrung us a little bit, and so there's a lot there's a lot in the pipeline. It's it's an exciting time to be here. So thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. And thanks to our listeners for joining us today on Endpoint Management Today. This podcast is the brainchild of James and me. James and I take turns on editing this thing, so any mistakes you hear are. One of us. You can blame us. And our original music is from Dan Corcoran, Big Fix Specialist. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you.